0: a cartoon
1: revolution. I'm Deidre. And I'm Sonia. Why cartoon revolution? Because the cartoons we love aren't just for kids anymore. Cartoons have something to say and
0: change to inspire, and we're here to break it down for you.
1: Whether it's anime or Pixar, 2D or CG,
0: join us as we take cartoons too seriously and discover their
1: hidden meanings and revolutionary ideas. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. (laughs) Today, we are talking about one of my favorite anime films ever. I'm so excited. The movie is called Millennium Actress, and it's from one of my favorite anime directors, Satoshi Kon, who is really famous. If you have not seen any of his films, what are you doing? Just pause and go watch it immediately. Any of his films. <laughs> They're so, so good. But, DJ, have you have you heard of him or seen any of his other works?
0: So, I watched Paprika. That was the only nice. one I had watched. Very good. And you told me about this. And I had heard mm-hmm. about like Tokyo Godfathers. Mm-hmm. I heard that was a fun one. Nice. Yes. I had Great. not heard about Millennium Actress. Although. Yeah, it's
1: kind of crazy how, I guess, not talked about it is. I know, I mean, people who are into anime and con movies definitely know it. But yeah. it's something that I hadn't heard until I had watched it. And it was actually for a Japanese film class that I took in college. Mm. Yeah. So, but when I watched it, I was just like, How have I never heard of this? It's just, it's so beautiful. It's just so immersive. It's filled with so much joy and excitement. Anyways, I'm very um, happy that you have experienced it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was surprised too. Cause I think for those of us who I mean, I I love Anime, and I'm not like you know a newbie to the Noob. genre. To not you, that, haven't
1: like... th- you haven't yeah. seen any. you haven't seen anything.
0: I think Ghibli is the first thing a lot of people yeah. think about, yeah, for, good and reason. for really great reasons. Yeah, and I've watched other movies other than Ghibli, but I, I didn't realize how how different, how experimental, and how interesting the storytelling mm. of yeah. Cone's work mm-hmm. is and it honestly like that's the kind of thing that I watch and then it reminded me of Neon Genesis Evangelion <laughs> yeah which is not it's not like it's the same vibes or anything but the storytelling and the way that mm-hmm. the frames are used right. and like the visual language yeah. and it's just it's different and it's <laughs> exciting
1: yeah very yeah. exciting a little bit old school mm-hmm. very it feels more experimental, but is also very accessible too.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very different from, I think, like Western, the Western Absolutely. film perspective. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so just to provide a little bit of in context, so Satoshi Kon was a Japanese mangaka, animator, and film director who developed only about five major works in his life, which are Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, paranoia agent and paprika. Um, he very, very tragically passed away at the age of 46 due to pancreatic cancer and a lot of people really mourned that loss not only because he was an amazing person but because of all of the art and you know films that he could have produced that we will now no longer see. Very sad. but today he is recognized as one of the foremost Japanese film directors, especially in animation and he is revered by and inspired by many. Artists and directors, including Darren Aronofsky, Christopher Nolan, Guillermo del Toro, a lot of these really famous directors have sort of alluded to his work in their films. And he is most famous for this concept of blending fiction and reality, which we'll talk a little bit more. It's a huge commonality among all his works, including in Millennium Actress. So I guess to summarize a little bit of what we're talking about for Millennium Actress, it was Kohn's second film. And so it was released in 2001, produced by Madhouse, which is the amazing studio behind so many great works like Hunter x Hunter, Parasite, Claymore, Cardcaptor Saka, The Girl Who Loved Through Time. The list goes on. But anyways, Millennium Actress follows a television interviewer named Genya Takibana and his cameraman, Kyoji Iida, who interview the once famous and iconic but now sort of reclusive actress, Chiyoko Fujiwara, who tells the story of the time she saved a painter and political dissident who leaves behind a key and disappears from her life. And so she sort of becomes kind of obsessed with him and really wants to reunite with him and return his key. And she becomes an actress with the aim of hopefully catching his eye and meeting him once again. And so she tells the story of her efforts to Genya, through the lens of the many films that she has acted in throughout her career. And so the line between cinema and reality sort of blurs until it's difficult to tell what really happened. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful film. It's an homage to Japanese film history. It's also believed to have been inspired by a very real actress named Setsuko Hara, who, like Shioko, was a famous actress for many years before she left the business and became a recluse. But yeah, so any any initial thoughts, Deidre? I have some questions too, but any reactions <laughs> that you want to share? How did you feel about watching this movie?
0: This movie, it's one of those movies, it, it reminded me a little too of, have you ever watched Barefoot Gen?
1: No, I haven't, what is that?
0: It's a very different vibe, but it's about this boy who lives in, I think Nagasaki and survives the atomic bomb that is dropped there. And then his like journey, afterwards and through life and having to survive through something like that and Mm. that's a very heavy topic and there's a scene that is just devastating of course that is what the film is known for but it is juxtaposed by the fact that this is a young boy the way that he sees the lens of the world is before quite happy and upbeat and there's like this this glaze over it and this movie in millennium actress there's I just thought it's so interesting that it dealt with some really heavy shit of definitely yeah of Japanese history because at the same time of being like an ode like you can tell that the director really loved Japanese cinema yeah and the role it played in history but he wasn't afraid to shy away from the fact that there are some really ugly parts of yeah recent militaristic Japanese history that aren't above criticism just because you Mm -hmm. love something doesn't mean you can't criticize it at all. And I know that's a difficult thing on the internet, but (laughs) it's called nuance and we all kind of need it. it.
1: Yeah, I really, I agree. It was a very honest, but also joyous portrayal like while it was showing a lot of dark things It still felt very hopeful and I think a lot of that is due to just like the pure, I don't know, focus and joy that the main character expresses and and her desperation as well to find this man. It's just always keeps propelling you forward because there's such a clear objective that she has throughout the whole story. But I also agree, like it's really, I like your point about the way that it discusses history, how it's very... Honest, isn't afraid to shy away. Is both very mourns a lot of what happened, but also celebrates a lot of what happened. I think that's really important, especially when it comes to Japanese history, with you know a lot of crimes committed both against and from you know Japanese history and the revisionism that happens a lot within Japanese politics. I think, especially when we're talking about memory and how you tell a story there's so much that this film has to say which kind of leads me to my first question which is I don't know if you ever did this as a kid I certainly did but like when you told stories or even now when you tell stories do you ever find yourself omitting certain details or stretching others have you ever made up any fictional story entirely or perhaps forgotten a real story I don't know if you have any examples of that
0: (laughs) I'm just, like, making faces, (laughs) because...
1: Spill the beans.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, of course, no one has... Well, not no one, but the majority of the population does not have perfect memory, and we're not computers. I don't even know. To be honest, I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah, I was just, like... I mean, when I was a kid, for example, I was, like, a compulsive liar in the sense that, like, I would just make up stuff all the time and Mm -hmm. tell people, like, things that I saw, like, whether it was something really... Fictional, like I saw a dragon, or mm-hmm. just like a small lie, like oh yeah, like one time I did a I don't know flip in the air or something. <laughs> 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 and I think when I was a kid, there was just a way of making myself seem cool and interesting, and also because I, I I was very obsessed with fiction, like a lot of kids, like I'd watch TV and read books all the time, so I. Was used to the idea of a narrative and the way that it should be structured. And so when I applied that to my life, I would try to embellish some of it to make it seem more interesting. But I think a lot of kids sort of learn as they grow up that the more lies you tell, the more easy it is for people to call you out and sort of inconsistencies to appear. And so you kind of learn uh, not to lie or embellish stories as much. But even still, I think as adults, like we still sometimes stretch the truth a little bit to paint us in a better light or even try to repress or forget things that we've done that aren't as glamorous. Like, I know I've definitely repressed a few memories of really embarrassing things that I did in high school. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess it's it's just interesting to discuss since this film is all about a story being told by a famous actress who you know, is kind of by nature of her job, a liar, like actresses, actors, that's what they do is they they sort of pretend paid liars, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think that idea is interesting, too, because if anything, the story itself that Chiyoko tells, which is in her perspective, and like you said, some things may be exaggerated, some things may be omitted this could be this hopeful glazed version of the story that she's telling and it might not be completely factually accurate. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean that the story is less truthful, like it might be less factual, but the point is still made because it's actually really wasn't about the facts at all. Did she need to exactly know the face and the identity of the man Kibe, the guy that she's chasing for the Kibe. <laughs> um,
1: does oh, she are you to- with Kibe? Are you referencing that uh, you, the YouTube video? Because he doesn't have a name in the film. He goes. The guy with name. the red scarf. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. So, oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. That's I did watch. Okay, then I should just say the what I watched. I watched <laughs> this YouTube video by Breadsword
1: and. Is it Breadsword or Breadsword? It is, it's, it is bread sword. Oh, it fuck. is breadsword. Okay.
0: Don't come after me. No, well, why would it be breadsword? That didn't make any well, sense. That's what in my
1: you head. said. I don't know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it anyways, it didn't really make sense in my head, USA's. but I was like, yeah,
0: yeah, I was just like, well, what do I know? So, you know, you do you. And the, the, I, mean, I don't
1: actually know. You could be right.
0: <laughs> Please tell us. The, the, the the video is called Satoshi Kon and Why Is Love All You Need? Episode 2, Millennium Actress. And yeah, this person's a video essayist on YouTube and you can tell that this person really, really loves talking about anime. And Respect. this one in particular, yeah, it, it was really helpful to contextualize everything, not just as the film itself, but also the larger... Symbolic meaning. So, if that's something that interests you, please check that out on YouTube.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So, just to clarify, the man in the film is unnamed. We don't know who he is, but in uh-huh. this video, he's references Kibe. <laughs> so, yes. I guess we've kind of adopted that.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. So, if I refer to that person, you know who I'm talking about. I want to talk about the the significance of being able to continue the story throughout time, throughout the millennium, if that makes sense. Because the way that the story is told blends Chiyoko's real life with her movie life. And the movies are all kind of based in different time periods, just like Chioko's life. But obviously the movies can go through a wider range of time periods. Mm-hmm. And yet the story is seamless. I think there's like archetypes. Yeah, there's archetypes that show up in every iteration that are consistent and kind of go towards this theme of the cycle of life and how it repeats itself. And yeah,
1: I I really think like, as you're saying, it's very fragmentary in the sense that there are completely different environments and stories happening, but the narrative structure of all of the stories is the same. Chioko's trying to find and rescue the man that she believes she's fallen in love with and return his key. But there's also really amazing artistry in the way that all of the color schemes are very united across all of these stories. Like Chioko's is always associated with red, for example, and then the, a lot of the tones are sort of just reds and and darker colors, grays and, and whites, or neutral colors. And then there's also a lot of of similar motifs in like the sense of wheels appearing constantly. Like we have like the the spinning wheel and the bicycle wheel that sort of appear throughout the common motif of like the scarf appearing or red coming in that sort of form because that's what Chiyoko gave to the men. And so I really like how the animators and Kone, like they really designed everything very intentionally so that even though you're transported across all of these different stories, it still feels like a very united, comprehensive story that makes sense in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, every frame mattered. Right. And all these like symbol symbolism things, which are also mentioned in bread sword or bread's words video, (laughs) (laughs) um, kind of breaks down a lot of that as well. Like I thought, so it was really interesting to me because I did notice things like the lotus and the crane popping up a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see it in one of the very first scenes. Yeah. of the movie and in the very last scene
1: yeah and then uh, the truck i think it's on the truck that she gets transported to hokkaido on
0: yeah i mean it's everywhere it's yeah in a tapestry behind her it's mm-hmm. like in on her baby blanket and then like that's also a lot of times mixed with the crane mm-hmm. uh the red the red crowned crane mm-hmm. you know that like white crane yeah with some black and then has the red right on top yeah and the really lotus beautiful. flowers too yeah and it, it's those two symbols together signify in in Japanese culture, his signifies longevity and purity. Uh, purity. Yeah. And especially together, that particular crane is used in Japanese like paintings and art, but it's very much used in Chinese historical mm. paintings and art to the point that in Chinese culture, the phoenix is the number one kind of like feathered Bird that you see in those paintings, but the the crane is the second one,
1: and oh, very cool.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's there's a lot that it, it doesn't really say, but it alludes a lot to a lot of the historical um, tension between Japan and China, especially in mm-hmm. around the time of World War II and after. Mm-hmm. And yet, the symbolism in this. I think was really poignant in showing that mm-hmm. Japan and China have a very shared history. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's like a larger lens. Maybe we can get into later. I'm not the most well versed in all of this. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very complicated. And people be fighting all the time. Everyone, people will find like countries, people will find reasons to hate on others. And that is also a part of the Wheel of Life. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think that gets to kind of a larger discussion on, I guess, narrative structures and the common themes that we always see. So it's really interesting how Chiyoko's whole goal in her life is to find this man and return his key. And she calls it love in, in, through most of the movie. That's her motivation. But we also find that the same motivations and driving pursuits are in so many of the films that she's acted in or at least that she's placed her desire into and it's always within a larger landscape of war too but not always like there are some films that she's in that are just like family dramas for example but it's just really I I like how it portrays how much desire or desire for someone or something drives every human, drives so many different cultures within every single narrative. There's always the similar themes of like war and strife, love, but it's always bound by the same thing, which is desire for something, a need for something or love for something, whether it's to protect your people or to protect your lands or to save someone Uh, rescue someone, return an item to someone or find an item. These are these similar motivations and drives are kind of what unites all people and all stories. And that's really seen through all of these different films that we get a look into through this movie.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the different archetypes that show up because there's Kenya right? Who is the filmmaker who finds Chiyoko who's been in isolation for so long and he's such a fan and you find out later that he's been part of the production. He's like an assistant or something back when Chiyoko was acting and he throughout the story he's like an observer but then he becomes part of the story as well which is really interesting. Then there's what do you know? remember the name of that actress? I don't know. Okay anyway there's also that that, you know, the man with the scar, Mm -hmm. which I think is a very interesting character because just like the man with the scarf or Kibe, as I very easily called (laughs) them, the the man with the scar does not have a name in the credits. He's just, Mm. he's a character that I think embodies this like authority figure who, to be clear, is not actually like he wasn't an emperor he wasn't a king he was one of the people who was there to like enforce the the, whatever authority Mm -hmm. was in power at the time and even though they say like they're not culpable because they're just following orders they were the ones who committed the crime of like killing Kibe, of locking chiyoko away in in prison for or Mm -hmm. like holding her captive and I think that speaks to the larger point of how atrocities happen because there are people who are willing to forego the blame and do these terrible deeds. No one is immune to not, to like the idea of giving up their autonomy so that they can just, so they don't have to think about just the harsh realities of life and then they end up doing terrible things. Like no one's immune to that. There's a lot of other factors. But it's not right, <laughs> you know? I think it's- Yeah.
1: Yeah, so an I think character. what you're kind of alluding to is like the way that we, like we kind of talked about earlier, like understanding history versus revising history, grappling with it as with any story. And you're right that there are similar themes and archetypes throughout each story that we see. There's the man who represents law and order, the man with the scar, who's almost always the villain. And then we have like the older actress who's not necessarily a villain, but like maybe abetting the villain or just being aggressive or unhelpful in some other way. And she's maybe the ignorant type, the person who's just willing to go along with acts just to survive. And then we have Genya who's aiding our hero out of love. And then we have our main character, Chiyoko, who just wants to find love. And so I wonder if there's some message of maybe like Japanese political history here in which maybe Chiyoko represents, you know, the normal Japanese person who's just seeks peace and love. And then we have these other actors involved who are, you know, the aggressor who is just will do whatever justice demands from his government or from whatever the villain's want and then the older actress who will just abet that dream just to you know survive and so yeah I guess in a sense the message might be that the pursuit of love is always worth it or the pursuit of peace and safety is always worth it even if you it never achieves fruition like Gioko says and There's even that great line where the older actress, I can't can't remember her name, but she says, like, your love for the man, like, is what kept you young. It's what kept you alive and thriving as an actress. And she's absolutely right that it's like the pursuit of these things of love and dreams or whatever drives us that keeps us alive and young and thriving. And uh, yeah, I really like that the movie sort of celebrates that.
0: Just by the way, I found the name of that actress. Her name is Aiko Shimao. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then the director's son is Junichi Otaku. Otaki, sorry. Strong dislike. (laughs) Otaki. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think history in general is super complicated. And yet when we distill it down, we start to see patterns on who are similar players and why. I, I just think this film really nicely shows the push and pull between just like human forces. I guess throughout history and why things seem to be repeating themselves again and again. And if anything, like the pursuit of this man in the red scarf isn't I don't feel to be taken that literally. It's not just about chioko's pursuit of him, which she alludes to at the end. Or not alludes to, she literally says it right. Yeah, she's um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that he if she is if is just like a a regular person trying to make her way through life following a dream then he is the symbol of freedom and that dream that could that she believes is worth fighting for and unlocking
1: yeah exactly and
0: that scares i think that scares a lot of people in establishment places and that's when we see um, when we see history unfolding now. And I mean, even just, I guess, in Hong Kong, for example, like how it was really young people who stood up and tried to call out a lot of what was going on. and, And it really, it started off as very peaceful protests. What happened in 2019 was not out of nowhere. It was years of this leading up to it and it was peaceful for so long and the man in the red scarf did not pose any physical harm and his idea was literally a painter Chiyoko, but also yeah his ideas inspired Chioko. but it also was this like big threat that the man with the scar had to extinguish and that the higher-ups thought was worth extinguishing Okay, so the Hong Kong protests, subsequent police crackdown, all of that is still kind of difficult for me to talk about. So I'm being kind of vague. But what I'm trying to get at is that uh, so many revolutions and movements and protests are at their core spurred on by artists and students and ideals. So, for example, we've got the Soweto uprising in South Africa, the White Rose Society against Nazi Germany, the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, Fridays for Future, which is still going on, where students are protesting the inaction by politicians on climate change. So there's just so many examples. I don't know. Yeah. There's just a lot of parallels, and it really kind of—it's so good. Yeah, it and, got me there.
1: Yeah, and I think I really like how the film does a great job of portraying how your object of desire may be the object of someone else's danger as it is for the man with the scar, but also you may follow someone as your desire, but you are also the desire of someone else. And it sort of repeats in that cycle, as we see with the way that Chiyoko loves the painter and is also loved by Genya. And it's almost like a cycle of desire and rejection or a lack of achieving that desire that repeats over and over because some people's desires are in conflict and we've seen that with the way that Genya loves Chioko so much and then like hates the director who gets to marry her um, and Chiyoko doesn't even really see Genya at all or in that way she's just kind of confused <laughs> about his presence and why he keeps trying to save her so it just it it really does a good job of, of showing that because it is true like not everyone can get their true desire and most desires remain unfulfilled as it does for Chiyoko at the end
0: yeah which also wasn't a- I guess the desire itself was never really at the point anyway. Exactly. And life is not just, you know, collecting badges of things that you achieved. And, and,
1: right. Um, yeah. And it's like... Or accolades, it, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Desire, the drive of it, of the pursuit as we've talked about is what keeps you really going. And we see that with also Eiko, right? She has a lot of jealousy for Chiyoko because of the way that it keeps her young. And so... She became, Chioko became an object of a lot of hatred. And that kind of is represented through like the old ghostly witch thing that kind of cycles in throughout the story. Like she says to Chioko, I hate you and I love you so much. Are you the object of my greatest hate and of my greatest love? And I think that does a good job also of showing how pursuing something or desire for something can also lead to a lot of bitterness and, you know, self-hatred as much as self-love. And we see that Chioko kind of fears that she's becoming this spectral version of herself who then looks at her younger self and feels a lot of like jealousy and sadness as she kind of says when she says that I wouldn't even be recognized by this man or I can barely even remember his face and I'm not like I used to be. I don't recognize that person anymore. It's just so beautiful the way that it's portrayed and it just feels so human. And I think everyone can really connect with this story, even not just the Chioko, but all the other characters as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of stories right now, like what's really popular and tend to be really dark. I mean, just look at what is that series called? The South Korean one with the game? Squid um, Game. Squid Game. I have not watched it. So just have you watched it? Okay, I'm only bringing it up as an example of darker storytelling as a critique of capitalism. And I think as much as I understand why those stories resonate. This watching this movie reminds me why it's important to also have the hope and joy in the storytelling aspect. Mm -hmm. And I, even for, for me, right? Like I've talked in the past on this podcast about dealing with eco grief and eco anxiety, and when we learn about a lot of social issues, like it's pretty. Terrible a lot of the times, especially when we, if we only get our information from traditional news media and. I, I looked really hard to find activists who do give a more hopeful message. And there's another podcast called The Joy Report, if anyone's interested, that kind of recontextualizes these really intense topics and brings hopeful stories. And I guess it's not the most trendy thing, but that's why I think a movie like this is kind of important to watch right now <laughs> right especially as as it as it counterbalances a perfect blue because i've read mm-hmm. a lot about how those are like sister films and perfect blue is the more famous movie right yeah yeah the I've darker seen movie so yeah can, can you, you like of... maybe summarize it really quickly
1: yeah so perfect blue is it's basically about a musical artist like a, a kind of like a j-pop artist who achieves a lot of fame and she eventually gets a stalker and she has a lot of like otaku very obsessed fans and it it's been a while since I've seen it but essentially like as with this movie the line between fiction and reality gets blurred and she feels this constant threat from the stalker and there's even a really horrifying rape scene in in the film and yeah she essentially gets haunted by this stalker and the ghost of her like past famous self as she's trying to identify her true self. And it's it's quite horrifying. And it does have a lot of negative things to say about fan culture and the ways in which we can also be, you know, very obsessed with you know certain actors or musical artists or whatever it may be. So you're right that Millennium Actress does complement it in a lot of ways, because that is a, a much darker film, and this film is a lot more as we've said, sort of like joyful and hopeful while still remaining poignant in what it's trying to critique and embrace. So I definitely really, yeah, I really like what you're saying too about the need for any type of social commentary to also have some type of hope and solution or at least a pursuit to follow rather than just, you know, dark things happening because of, you know, this thing bad, you know.
0: And without context, because as much as we can say that bad things in history repeat themselves and different actors you know like we see them come around again the good things are there too and without i think a lot of times there's discussions that that just don't put in the full context and it just adds to a lot of nihilism that in event that it in many ways allows the this like establishment that you're mad about to keep going because because then we get drained and that's not like blaming anyone any particular person for feeling those things because those are valid but working through them is also really important mm. as well if not yeah important.
1: you remind me of something else i wanted to talk about which is i think this is something we kind of talked a little bit about maybe in steven universe episode but I feel like there's a little bit of an injustice almost to complete stories because no story is ever truly complete. Like you always have, you know, ramifications to every ending. And as we've mentioned, like one character achieving their desire oftentimes means that another character has lost their desire, as we've sort of discussed. So I'm I'm almost wondering because so many of the films like in or the little like bits of stories we get in this a movie all of them are unfinished and even the whole movie as in a sense you could kind of imagine as being unfinished in the sense that Chioko doesn't get what she truly desires and I guess the film is sort of like has this message about there's not always one ending or one goal that you have to fulfill it's more about the journey it's more about the pursuit and what drives you through all the like little stories and arcs throughout your life. So it kind of brings to mind, as I was saying, like Steven Universe, how the show wraps up, like there's the big fight or whatever. But then we have Steven Universe Future, which kind of picks up all the scraps, the little pieces that are left behind, the the long term traumas, the little side things that weren't completed, Steven's mental health as a hero, what it actually means for the characters to rebuild this world after it's been torn apart, what it means to rebuild after you know, the legacy of an empire or colonization. And so I really like how this film doesn't have, it doesn't give you what you want for the whole film. They don't reunite. There's no like really solid, clear ending. Chioko just continues on to her next journey, which is continuing to find this man, even past death. Do you have any thoughts on like, what does it mean to have like a complete story?
0: Um, I think there is a place for complete stories, but I also... I absolutely see the, I I see the pitfalls of how complete stories can be as you know, it's, I think it's easy to think that they're fulfilling, but just kind of by the way that you said, there are a lot of ways in which it's actually truly unfulfilling because it doesn't give us the space as an audience to really grapple with the fact that you know life doesn't just come to an end and even like our our stories don't just come to an end and you know when we die that's not the end of time either like that's
1: <laughs> yeah you just know our important. body breaks down <laughs> we're
0: just we are recycled into this great beautiful yeah. world
1: it's the wheel motif you know that's
0: the the wheel motif and that's also like we uh, at least you know things like the Bhagavad Gita, the child stories, these more, storytelling is so important in human history and there's so many different examples that no one could ever finish because every culture has the same, but a lot of it is, mm-hmm. there's a lot that's played out and there are these huge epics, you know, that you can't, that there have been attempts to convert them to film and they haven't really worked, but I think the, the prevalence of those epics throughout history and different cultures just kind of show this importance of a continuing story
1: yeah and that a lot of these stories the audience is a participant like they we adjust stories as and they continue to be written throughout time and that we see that in this film and the way that genya and the cameraman koji i think go into the story and they affect what happens there and yeah i guess it, it undoes a lot of what we think of traditionally as stories in that they don't necessarily follow like a very specific structure. They don't necessarily have a solid, complete end and we, they are more malleable and able to be changed depending on who's telling it or who's filming it. And even more beautifully, the way that Shioko's different films are throughout different like, points in time, you get this sense that a lot of stories are unfinished and repeat and like try again throughout time in a very like reincarnative effect. That's really, really cool to see.
0: Right, because like traditional movies or like a lot of the stories that we we have nowadays because of the limitations of what has to be done in this capitalist setting means that there's, there should only be like one main vision and that we don't get to have this mixture of storytellers that throughout most of human history we had based on, that kind of, I think, keeps the truth of the story alive as opposed to like the factualness of the story, because the truth is essentially more important. Like if five people can tell the same story and the whatever, the sixth person still understands the story from everyone, then that's a good story. And But if only one person says it and the other five people have different interpretations, Mm -hmm. it's just a different type of understanding the story.
1: Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of Rashomon. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's no. an Akira Kurosawa film. And I haven't seen it in a while so I don't remember all the details, but the gist is that there are three, like there's I think a murder happens or something or something happens and there's three different people who tell their side of the story and all of them conflict and we never fully mm. get the answer of which story was correct. And then it's kind of commentary on that not being the point, but rather it being about the nature of stories and truth itself yeah I think I guess for my last question just to talk about like what do you think or what would you say is the main message or point of the film or like few main messages in your opinion
0: I think the point is that for all the complexities of history and life when we choose to follow an ideal versus just following the choices that are presented to us and we become active in how we decide our lives. Like that's the thing that's going to make our lives happier as opposed like once we, you know, relinquish some of that power to like external forces or other people, then that can really eat away at our souls because we don't have the agency, but it, it like helps to take the blame off. Like it can make people feel better, but being held accountable for your choices, whether they turn out good or bad, is is really the point of what's going to make you happier in life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. I love that. I think you wrote it out really well. I guess mine is very similar, which is that uh, stories are not set, but malleable. And we are all both participants, viewers, and actors in every story. And that the best ones are unfinished. And Life is really made of pursuits, one after the other, and these are what keep us alive and passionate and allow us to love to the full extent that we can and feel joy. So overall, very beautiful film. So thank you for sharing this discussion with me. (laughs) Oh, thanks for for
0: showing me this film. I don't think I would have watched this had you not recommended it, and I really needed to see it. I'm also thankful that you decided to choose this and not Perfect Blue because... As important as that film is, and that I definitely want to watch it at some point, this is definitely more my speed
1: (laughs) for now. (laughs) Right, right. Nice. Did you have any hot takes, Easter eggs, theories, anything that you wanted to share?
0: Yeah, so we alluded a little bit to how Satoshi Kon has affected Western cinema, and and especially this idea of blurring the narrator's actual life experiences with dreams and where, where reality kind of mixes. And I just read somewhere that Perfect Blue was one of the inspirations behind Black Swan, the movie Black Swan with Natalie Portman, and also that Paprika was one of the, was like a big inspiration behind, you know, that, yeah, that very big (laughs) movie Inception. And yeah, if you like either of those two movies, I think it just goes to show that it's worth watching the Satoshi Kon movies
1: because yes, definitely do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting. He has an interesting storytelling take.
1: Mm. What about nice. you? Yeah, for me, I just wanted to kind of point out some of the films or directors that are referenced throughout the movie because there's a lot of amazing works that come through in this film. So some of the Bigger ones that I at least recognize. There's probably many more that I didn't, but Kurosawa's Throne of Blood for sure, and a lot of his the samurai films in general, and period pieces. Yasujiro Ozu is really famous for some of his sort of like family dramas, and those are the ones that Setsuko Hara were in. That's those are her famous movies, and that comes in a few times. And then of course Godzilla is the other one that I noticed, which is very obvious. Another very classic. Japanese export to the world, which Hollywood thereafter adopted. I just wanted to highlight those because this film really does celebrate and cherish Japanese films. And I also wanted to briefly discuss too, uh, how interesting I thought it was that this film was an anime or animated piece that referenced a lot of live action films. And so I think that was really cool because it sort of completes the story of Japanese cinema because obviously Chioko couldn't have acted in an animated film. I mean, she could have voice acted, I suppose, but it does really complete the picture because anime is the most, the latest and most famous, I guess, export of Japanese media and culture. And it's really interesting to consume this vision of Japanese film history through an animated medium. And so I love that Satoshi Kon brought it in this way.
0: Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. It's yeah. Like when and you I was, think of Japanese uh-huh. culture, you think of anime and manga. Yeah, you and... really do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and Amazing. I just I just really liked too how I've read some articles about why he chose anime as his medium. And he said it was a lot of the ways in which he's able to show the pacing because there's you can show the speed of things a lot faster in anime than you can in live action because you're limited to, you know, the real world. But also the ways in which you can very seamlessly transition between sequences. And I think the best example is when Chiyoko trying to open the door in the train and she emerges into like the period piece with sort of the attacking samurai And so I thought that was really brilliant. He really took the most advantage that he could from the medium. And I think it really enhances that distortion between uh, reality and fiction that the whole movie is characterized by.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that's us wrapping up Millennium Actress, our episode on Millennium Actress. I just want to remind everyone that if you like our content, please like us, give us a review, rate us, subscribe. Those are all things that really help us get seen by other people.
1: Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, Mm -hmm. find us on your favorite podcast platform. We also got all of our links and our new link tree. So yeah, yeah. see you guys next time. New things, woohoo. Okay, bye, Bye. bye bye. Thanks for joining us on Cartoon Revolution. Episodes drop the first week of every month on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast platforms.
0: Follow us on Instagram at cartoonrevolution.pod.
1: That's cartoonrevolution.pod. Tell us what you're watching and share your hot takes with us. Music is from The Musical Ghost. See you next time. See you soon. Mwah.